Okay, gentlemen, we just we just hit six thirty, so we can go ahead and get started. We're jumping back into First Corinthians, and we're going to pick up at chapter six. I'll say a few words to hopefully work towards a little diagnosis of the overarching problem here in First Corinthians that Paul is addressing. Easier to do is to speak of it rather generally, and then concretely to its manifestation. So let's do that after our prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, bless us through the wisdom of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and that of his apostles, chiefly here, Paul, as he writes to the first Corinthians. May we also receive those words with glad hearts and where we find room to repent and be restored to you. May we do so, our sins being forgiven by your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and where we find opportunity to encourage and strengthen one another on those things that we are doing well and faithfully, let us do so also. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so it, by way of uh, generality, we're seeing that for one reason or another, the Corinthians are puffed up and arrogant, and that's manifesting itself in a number of ways. This sort of sectarianism, perhaps even looking at it as different schools of theology, different schools of thought, and then this kind of competition amongst one another. Um, we seem to have some sort of hint that even Paul himself has fallen under a, a kind of a judgment of the Corinthians, maybe even a comparative judgment that the the school or theology of Paul is okay, but it's inferior in these ways. And thus he says, look, don't judge ahead of the time. Uh, and it's a small thing that I would be judged by you, etc. Um, we see this same sort of arrogance manifesting itself in, and I don't want to be anachronistic about it, but it is what we would call today a kind of gospel reductionism where they're so puffed up in their knowledge and understanding of the grace of the so-called gospel that they're allowing this man in, uh, in manifest and impenitent sexual sin to uh, continue in communion with them. Paul corrects that in 1 Corinthians 5. And then in 6, this seems to be this kind of puffed upness um, is, is revealed in their taking one another to court uh, before the Gentiles the way this is typically done is the same way it's done here in the world. Generally speaking, poor people don't take rich people to court. Isn't that a general truth? I mean, unless it's very clear and you've got very good attorneys, then you might. But if it's just some smaller matter, you're not going to. If for no other reason, through a process of attrition, you're going to lose before you even get there, right? And indeed, we know flipped on its head, so corrupt are the so-called politicians and the, the so-called, you know, geniuses that lead all of these great wealthy companies that in many cases they've got to the position they are and they or, and or retain the position they have by litigating their competition out of existence. But if you can say by straight up attrition, I'm going to litigate you out of existence. You've vacated the field. Or how about if instead of doing that, I buy your company and you at a, at a lower than fair price, but you acquiesce to that because at least you walk away and we both win, right? That's the kind of corruption that takes place just all over. It's our systems based on it, built in it. It's uh, corrupt from its core. So um, writ on a small scale, the wealthy, uh, and this is true today, but it's also true in the ancient world, no problem hiring an attorney 
No problem dragging a poor person before a judge. The judge is going to see the wealth, see the respectability, see everything else, see the poverty, and say, oh, my mind's already made up. And plus, you know, care to donate to my wine fund or care to donate to my next campaign? So this is um, probably very much what's going on in Corinth. Uh, at any rate, you've got this, and, and the, the, the rich who are oppressing the poor, even within the congregation, emerges again in the context of the Lord's Supper. That's why it's worthwhile kind of connecting those dots that that's kind of what, I mean, I think it's certainly accurately what's going on in Korah, is you've got the wealthy puffed up, and in this case, over and against the poor. Okay, so with that background out of the way, let's just jump right back into chapter 6, verse 1, which was our cliffhanger from last week. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Probably the grammar would be better, like the the Rhodey standard translation. If I were to take, even though it's not maybe as elegant, it would start rather with how dare any one of you, if you have a grievance against another um, take him before the unrighteous instead of the saints. So there's an outrage expressed by Paul, and he's going to say, I write this to your shame, say this to your shame. So there's an outrage in Paul here that this is going on. As a tangent, but an important one, because on in one hand, it's it's a theological tangent. On the other hand, it's exactly the structure that undergirds what Paul is saying, and that's the distinction between the unrighteous and the saints. So believers and unbelievers, there's such a distinction that you would be, you as a Christian would be denigrating yourself, taking a brother to court before your lessers. You've got two saints taking one, if one saint takes the other to court to their, let you're already denigrating your position. And that's, I know that that might be an uncomfortable thing. It might especially be a uncomfortable thing with kind of our two kingdoms doctrine, but Whatever, that's just what Paul says. So where our categories need to bend or move, let's let the categories bend or move rather than try to manipulate the scriptures. <laughs> so this is exactly his argument. How how dare? How dare he go to law before the unrighteous instead of before the saints? Verse 2 of chapter 6, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Which all earthly cases are trivial, by the way, as verse 3 depicts. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Which is just matters pertaining to this life is one word in Greek. Uh, biotica or biotica so bios just as opposed to maybe zoe you can kind of work with that loose category in some places it's a clear distinction um bios being earthly life and zoe being eternal life or the life in christ um but here uh biotechica the things of this life the things of mere earthly living so how much more than 
matters pertaining to this life. And then that same word is actually repeated in four. So if you have such cases, it's really just biotica, biotica re, uh, repeated. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing as neutered? I mean, it's fine. It's neutered. Who has no standing in the church, namely unbelievers have no standing. So why would you take them there? But really a, a more proper reading would just be are despised. Why do you lay them before those who are despised in the church? Why would that be neutered? Because we don't like to think in those white or black terms. We don't like to think of those as being outside of the church being below us. We should not dignify them by having a trial in front of them um, or by being despised. And why are they despised? Because they despise our God. Their friendship with the world is enmity with God because the world is at enmity with God. And so... Um, I think St. Paul's just recognizing that in plain terms, and maybe he's putting it as starkly as, as, as one can put it for the rhetorical purpose of, of showing the absurdity of what it is they're doing. Uh, then let's just, let's just roll a little further along the section, and then we can pause and, and talk about it, because obviously it's going to raise uh, some conversation, maybe perhaps some questions or comments. Okay, so once more, verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who are despised or have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. I mean, in effect, this is like shame on you. That's why I'm saying this. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Again, Paul's just going right after them because this is the attack uh Hubris, pride, or arrogance has to be mocked, has to be ridiculed, has to be attacked. And that's what this is. I mean, this is this is sarcastic, sardonic, whatever you want to say, bitter. Um, it, does he really not think there's any wise enough? Of course. But he's he really is like rhetorically insulting their intelligence. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers probably should be an exclamation point rather than a question mark. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So even if you were to say, hey, you've got an issue brother to brother, you should go before um, some wise brother in the church to make the decision, to make the judgment. It's already a loss to have that difference between the two of you that you can't solve yourself. Paul's going to suggest just one such solution. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Uh, one more line, and then I think it, it's good to maybe treat the next section separately, but nine ties in, I believe. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So they're acting as unrighteous, having uh, taking one another to court, uh, defrauding one another, wronging one another in front of the unrighteous. Okay, so here is a general principle that I'm taught in 1 Corinthians, um, that a brother, a Christian, should not take a Christian to court. But we know there are exceptions. 
right? And I'll just, I'll kind of suggest a couple and then um, we'll maybe at least give you a couple different ideas to consider. And then we can open it up. Perhaps you've got other circumstances that come to mind. Um, right now, and I'm hardly an expert on the matter. I have really a passing knowledge at best. But uh, there's a Concordia in Texas that has their property via the LCMS, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And they're trying to secede from that and basically just take the property with them. It's theft. That's what it is. And they want to do this for their own purposes. They don't want to be under the conservative governance of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. So the university is going after so the university is trying, well, the university is trying to say, uh, it's our property now. Um, see you later. And they're trying to make it all complicated and, you know, everything else. Um, of course, one of the arguments raised is, well, you, you know, the LCMS cannot take us to court because first Corinthians six precludes it. But here, <laughs> so here's, but here, of course, is the problem. That property doesn't belong to them. That property belongs to the church and the synod, that is the off the men holding office in the synod are not defending their own private property. They're defending the property of others. That's a huge distinction. Furthermore, in defending the property of others, due process needs to be given uh, to the reality of a conflict between Christians. So you have ostensibly Christians in at Concordia, Texas, and ostensibly Christians in the LCMS, and they can't agree on what to do. But one entity or the other is guilty of sin. Maybe they both are. Yeah. Okay. That's possible. But on the matter of whose property is it, one party has right claim and the other party doesn't. One one party's claim is true and one party's claim is false. One is righteous and one is unrighteous. So part of this process that needs to be borne out is, uh, now we know that the property belongs to the synod, belongs to the church collective. So as this tries to get stolen away from us, what actually needs to take place is Matthew 18. What actually needs to take place is you're guilty of this sin, repent. And if they won't, and Matthew 18 is expended, as our Lord says, they're outside. They're like tax collectors. So what needs to, not only is the LCMS in this case, in the right in taking this to court, but an essential part of that is to recognize that these are not brothers in Christ who are trying, who are engaged in open impenitent thievery. Now, if the LCMS does not have the theological cojones for that, then the LCMS falls in error because they are saying these are brothers in Christ and they have a kind of equal theological claim. Oh, we just got to let the courts sort it out. That's exactly the kind of thing that first Corinthians is saying. No way. All right, so there's a there's a little test case, right? And and you can explore the dynamics, and you can you can understand how um, it is permissible uh, for Christians to engage in a lawsuit if 
the behavior of other Christians is patently unchristian, if there's a trust of the property involved, it's not your own personal loss, so to speak, but it's the loss of a collective whole. And um, that needs to go with it, a sense of church discipline and a sense of, no, there's sin being committed and the church needs to judge the higher matter of the sin and the impenitence. Let the lesser matter of the property um, be handed over to the civil courts. And there we do then see um, the role and place of a left-hand kingdom, a kingdom of Christ to decide and determine those, those legal issues. Okay, so I've thrown that out there. Nice red steak, so you can uh, uh, chew into it if you if you see differently or if you have any questions or comments. But I bring that up as an exception. Um, uh, we have an attorney with us, and uh, <laughs> though it might have been a few years ago, he um, wrote a paper. Um, so if you have anything to add or if I said anything incorrect, you'd like to correct, I'm all ears. No, no corrections. I, the only thought that occurs to me is that it gets complicated because you have Christians that don't belong to the same church. Mm-hmm. Christians that don't belong to the same denomination. Mm-hmm. And you have corporate enemies um, going after each other. And if they're not, if corporate enemies are neither Christian or not Christian. Right, right. So it's, 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 not as, it's not as easy to apply what Paul is saying. I, I can see it in, 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 a, in a local congregation. Mm-hmm. Very clear in a local congregation. But once you pass that, it's yeah, so I'll try to summarize the comment just for the mic and those online. Um, in the local congregation, this is pretty darn clear and pretty darn easy. Uh, even within a church body, it's relatively easy and relatively straightforward. It gets complicated when, let's say, you have the LCMS versus the ELCA, two different denominations altogether. Or when you have corporations, which in and of themselves are neither Christian nor non-Christian, and um, then you might also think of parachurch organizations, this kind of thing, where the waters get quite a bit muddied. Yeah. Fair representation of your of your point? Yeah, and I would agree with all of that. That's exactly right. There's other situations, though, and we're seeing it more and more, is denominations, corporate, like the Methodist, Southern Baptist, and stuff like that, that the church decides, hey, you're going beyond. You're turning into a reprobate organization, and we're splitting from you. Mm-hmm. And then the organization, the parent organization, saying, hey, no, that property belongs to us. Mm-hmm. So exactly. that's that's the kind of thing I'm, I'm seeing here. Mm-hmm. Now it's you're going to have to take that to court because you you're not. You have to determine that these people aren't part of the what you were, right? Because they're in sin and they refuse to repent. The body is over here saying, "Hey, you're leaving us. Mm-hmm. We're not leaving you. You're leaving us." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing. You know, I see that in the Methodist. Yeah, but they're breaking up as well as the Episcopals. Exactly right. Well, and it's like you know, Constitution and bylaws don't really matter until they do. <laughs> you know, they're they're kind of denigrated and unimportant and second class documents. I mean, nobody goes pouring through the bylaws. Usually I, I do once in a while, but um, they're there. And then all of a sudden, when you've got such an issue, like a breach between a congregation and a, a district or in our case, or a congregation and a synod, all of a sudden what's written there becomes very important. Or if you have some sort of division within the congregation itself, um, 
you know, a massive kind of split situation who retains the congregation, who is the congregation and who remains. Um, we tangentially saw some of those things, although there were no constitution and bylaws, I'm sure, uh, in first John, it was the circumstances where, uh, a sizable portion, perhaps even the majority of the congregation came under a false teaching and ended up taking off and claiming to be the true church in that place. Yes, all kinds of nastiness and messiness. Um, but as, as is often the case, there's a biblical principle laid forward. It's straightforward and easy enough. We just recognize that in the complexity of spiritual warfare and the complexity of sinful imaginations, um, there are exceptions to these rules and exceptional circumstances. What, what sort of situations would fall under the second half of verse 7? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? How would that, how does that tie in with all of this? Yeah. I'm not saying the church should just say, take our stuff, but it's it's there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, um, like, you know, in my mind, it's always a little more simple when it's agrarian. Okay, so you and you and your neighbor, um, you're both you're both maybe ranchers or something, right? You belong to the same congregation. Uh, you've told your neighbor several times he needs to fix the fence. He doesn't. His ox comes over and gores your ox or something. You say, "Hey, I told you to fix the fence. You owe me a new ox." And he says, oh, oh, I did fix it. And no, you didn't. It's been broken for four years and there it is broken, you know. And so you owe me a new And there's contention now. So I think that the admonition would be, hey, can't you take this before the church? And I mean, we're uncomfortable with this because we go, and, and again, this will expose a kind of abuse that's crept into our thinking. Oh, the church is just the right-hand kingdom, not the left-hand kingdom. I mean, Paul knows nothing of that. This is a chief example of our categories being misapplied. The church is absolutely called to left-hand kingdom matters in some cases, and Paul's explicitly citing that here. So why not go before the pastor? Why not go before the board of elders? Um, why not go before a, 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 um, a jury appointed by the district or the regional church? That would Any of those would be far preferable to exposing your dirty laundry in the presence of unbelievers and retains the dignity of the church, retains the unity of the church, retains. So now if you were the one who got your ox gored and you were hearing this from St. Paul, you start thinking like, you know, have I not offended and transgressed against my Lord? I have. Have I not been negligent? And has he not forgiven me? Then might I not also find it in my heart to forgive my neighbor? And especially for the peace and well-being of the church. And maybe it would be better to just be defrauded and suffer the wrong in that case. So I think, again, it's very clear if it's private individual property at stake. Yeah. Not yes, to, sir. Not to restate what you just said, but yeah, I don't think back then they had corporations that are like these separate organizations where you have no personal liability. I think yeah. like you're well, back then, you're probably always personal liable for everything that you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas now they're these separate entities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. It's it's complicated by some of our legal structure as as it is. Yeah. Sorry, I think we have another attorney in the room. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't mean to put you on the spot. (laughs) 
just just tonight you're off or uh, no? <laughs> just Tuesday. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if there were, you know, I think St. Paul would kind of suggest this on, on a congregational level. We did this with Concordia, Texas at the synodical level as well. And I mean, I, I'm definitely not s- stating things according to Robert's rules and the corporate legal speak. OK, but the, the general sense of uh, the synod gathered together um, was like, yeah, that's our property. Please retain it. <laughs> So I think that's good practice, um, whether it's a, a synod, a church body, a communion, or whether it's a local congregation, that if there is some big thing that's stirring everybody up, well, get the church council or get the synod in meeting, get the voters, right, and determine as a group what you're going to do. And, what, and that's a much preferable way than, um, you know, looking at the billboard on the way to church and calling the attorney and seeing, uh, seeing what you can do there. Yeah. Maybe we don't need another uh, example, but a, a clear-cut uh, exception from my youth. LCMS congregation has a pastor teaching false doctrine. District president actually intervenes and says, hey, knock it off. He refuses. Um, said pastor says, I know what we'll do. We'll change synods. Only problem was mission congregation uh, and uh, the property was owned by the district. Split in the congregation, 49-51%, with the 51 voting to leave. They proceed to change the locks, keeping the 49% out. And at that point, the district steps in and says, no, no, I don't think so. Lawsuit ensues, and finally, the proper party prevailed. But, you know, there there you definitely have brother against brother. It was nastiness all the way around. But probably justice was served and probably uh, making the best of a bad situation. The church did the right thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that example, David. That's great. And it is the strength of belonging to a church body. You know, I think any independent congregation that's independent for any length of time kind of starts smelling like a cult. And you've got, if nothing else, you don't have that sort of corporate accountability. So um, not only do we have um, constitution and bylaws, but that ties us to doctrine, a doctrinal standard, and that ties us to uh, district and ties us to synod as a congregation. So um, those those shenanigans, the kind that David was describing, can prevail in our in our setup, but only for so long, and then things get rectified. Pastor Rodi, I think we have uh, elsewhere teaching that it says if we have a problem against a brother, we're to leave our gifts at the altar and go try and resolve it, you know. And so uh, it's that's what uh, you expose your heart then is if you're doing it for the right motives, you shouldn't be afraid to confront a brother or in this case, a group of brothers just to try and resolve it and engage Christ in the process if it's done correctly. Mm-hmm. I, that's yeah, that comes. It's a great point. It's a great point. A lot of a lot of what ails. I think I said this in a different class. If I said it in the same class last night, I, I or I'm mean, last week, I apologize. Um, but the the church as a body, and here I just I don't even mean any one single denomination necessarily. Just the church as a body right now has AIDS. 
we have an autoimmune deficiency syndrome. Is that right? Okay. <laughs> Thank goodness. I didn't study that, but um, yeah, we've got an, we've got an immunity problem. Sin has always been in the church. Sinners have always been in the church. The impenitent have always been in the church, like nothing new under the sun, but where the church is the church and where the church is a healthy body, you have an immune system. You have a way of rectifying and in some cases, that's speedy. And in some cases, that's slower. Due process needs to always be followed. But in some cases, biblically, due process is like, did we have a meeting about it? Did we agree? Okay, it's on. Like that, the decision's being announced. Um, and that is for the health of the body. In other cases, it's long and protracted. And where there might be an individual issue that, you know, in Matthew 18, it's this kind of long and protracted thing where it's a matter of public false doctrine or public grievous sin, Matthew 18 doesn't apply. Other passages of scripture apply to rebuke one right away and to rebuke one sternly and publicly, um, especially in the case of like false doctrine um, that's stubbornly adhered to. Hey, look, this is what the Bible says. This is what you said. Do you repent? No, I don't repent. See you later. And we're announcing your see you later on Sunday. That, that's a functioning immune system in the church. And we have lacked that for a long time. A lot of, because we've lacked this, we've lacked fortitude. We've lacked a sense of uh, truth and error. And instead we've given way to this kind of mentality of, well, everybody wins, arbitration. Everybody wins. So in the, you know, this is a, this is a common thing that, that gets complained about in the church. Is you, you go to arbitration against somebody who's clearly done something sinful and wrong. And what's told to you is like, okay, well, let's all kneel at the foot of the cross and confess our sins and confess that we've all been wrong in this. And then let's go from there. Absolutely not. Are you kidding me? Absolutely not. This isn't, this is about one particular issue. And if I've sinned in this issue, then call me out on that sin. But I'm bringing a charge against a brother. If a brother is bringing a charge against me, it's not that he needs to kneel at the foot of the cross with me so we can all sing Kumbaya. He needs to have his charge substantiated, and then I'll repent, or else I'm out. Uh, or if he can't substantiate his charge, he needs to repent. One side or the other needs to repent. One side or the other is true in, or an error. Maybe both sides are an error, but that needs to be demonstrated. But this sort of... Um, what I'm describing is really the disintegration of the immune system in the church as we take on this sort of uh, quasi-American corporate, everybody everybody wins, here's your participation ribbon, nothing ever really gets solved, now let's all hug. And ooh, I, that, as, as just um, as Christians, but especially as men, I mean, that kind of sappy effeminacy ought to just drive us nuts, and we ought not tolerate it, so... Get off my soapbox now, but uh, that's what's ailing. And so, the, I mean, of course, look at the Roman Catholic Church practicing Roman Catholics in good standing, publicly egregious sinners, uh, public worshipers of Molech, championing the feeding of, of uh, unborn babies to demons in sacrificial acts. And the Roman Catholic Church says, oh, uh, just come to communion. It's okay. That's a non-functioning immune system. So that's what I mean by the body of Christ in the West, irrespective of denomination. We are all in one way, shape, or form suffering from a compromised immune system. 
And it's going to be regaining that and trusting God. Again, we've worshipped numbers, so we're afraid to offend anyone. That's the same as worshipping people. To get back to worshiping God and let the people sort themselves out. And lo and behold, in the history of the church where people actually turn toward God and don't care about numbers and money, numbers and money actually come. (laughs) That's the paradox, right? Almost as if God's real and almost as if he's in charge and almost as if he honors the intention. And and this is the kind of language we need to recover too, that God honors and respects people who attempt to be faithful to him. Pastor, yes, sir. Where did the left hand kingdom theology come from? Yeah, so the left hand, right hand kingdom is important theology and it is biblical theology. So it really becomes popularized in the West by Augustine's City of Two Gods. But truth be told, it's all the way in the scriptures. So even a statement where, like, for example, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. Okay, so you've got a kingdom that is in this world, but not of this world. Now, we're going to call that a right-hand kingdom, just nomenclature, and a left-hand kingdom. Now, why handedness? The point being that Christ reigns, and here's the part that the modern church has forgotten, that the hands are Christ's. Christ rules in his kingdom that is not of this world via his word and sacraments and the pastoral office. He rules in his left-hand kingdom uh, via the the governing authorities, Romans 13 stuff. But it's Christ who rules both. And we are taught uh, in the scriptures and in the small catechism to pray for godly left-hand kingdom rulers, to pray for Christians. I understand there's a whole bunch of scuttlebutt about Christian nationalism and all this other stuff, but those same people who don't want Christian nationalism are very much in favor of Jewish nationalism right now, aren't they? Or any other nationalism out there except Christian nationalism here. I I mean, that betrays itself as purely satanic. Um, Of course we're fighting. The, The Christians fought for the conversion of the Roman Empire. When they had that, paganism and all its horrors went down. Right, Civil righteousness went up. Uh, you know, people people who don't want us to have Christian rulers and don't want to vote for Christian, and don't want to make that a thing, they're okay with the with the state saying that um, like it's preferable to them to just allow the state to say to our to our children, oh yeah, you don't need your parents' permission before you have something cut off, before you're spayed and neutered. You can do that under the authority of our schools. And there are actually sane Christians out there who say, oh yes, yes, that's preferable to Christian nationalism. I, friends, the emperor has no clothes, and the light and dark is getting just ever more clear. And if the church can't speak clearly to these issues, we've lost our mind, we've lost our place. In fact, biblically speaking, we've lost our lampstand. That's the language of Revelation where Jesus comes and speaks to his churches and said, that's it. You've got one last chance to repent or your lampstand is gone. And we need to recover that view of Christ, too. And the kumbaya used car salesman, hey man, peace, love, everything. Oh yeah, inclusivity. And oh no, I'd never hurt you. I'd never judge anyone. That is not the Christ of the scriptures. So we have to regain our Christology. We have to regain our church. We have to regain our sense that Christ rules. Um, if you want to, if you really want to get converted on this, um, if you're not with me, uh, go read, go read and pray Psalm 2. Go read and pray Psalm 2 where 
God laughs in derision at the civil authorities who would oppose him and oppose Christ. Where God warns them all strictly that he will judge them and condemn them and punish them for their unfaithfulness to him. If that's not, I mean, Christian nationalism, cosmically, I don't know what is. So, uh, yeah, certainly, uh, certainly that's helpful. Um, to see, to see something like that in Psalm 2, uh, and go, go reread, uh, Revelation. Um, you don't have to get much past chapter, uh, five, where you see that not only is Christ decisive and, uh, just decisive Lord and just judge over his church, but he is also over the nations. And when he is ascended into heaven, he is enthroned into heaven. And guess what? He's not just reigning over congregations. He's reigning over nations. Um, we also have to have this, we also have to have this, uh, we have to get rid of Zionism. Zionism is a heresy. And I think, um, many, many of our Christian takes need to, need to be, um, this way. Oh, nation A is fighting against nation B. They both hate Christ. Let them destroy each other. I don't care. They both hate Christ ostensibly. How do you know that this isn't Christ who reigns? saying this is their mutual punishment, that they will destroy each other because they hate me and hate my rule. So then as a Christian, in your namby-pambyism, and I don't mean any of you here, you're, you're actually opposing Christ by wringing your hands. Oh, dear. Oh, no, another war. You're opposing Christ. Christ reigns. Christ rules. Christ arranged it that his enemies are destroying each other. I, at bare minimum, we ought to say, okay, I'll, I'll pray that there not be human suffering beyond what is necessary. But even then, I mean, this is a challenge that I have to challenge myself with. When you read the scriptures, um, when it comes to war, even godly war, men, women, and children are fair game. When God has his people go into a nation that has opposed him wickedly and that has served Satan in opposition to him, God says, destroy them all, including their animals. So if you think that that's inherently sinful or inherently morally repugnant, that I'm going to challenge you, even as I have to challenge myself, that that's not in line with the morality of heaven. That is not in line with the morality of God. That's the kind of namby-pambyism we've all gotten cajoled into and taught falsely. So I understand there's a whole lot of horror and a whole lot of um, masculinity and a whole lot of fear of God packed into that, but... Boy, that sounds better than the alternative. It uh, reminds me of the Old Testament. Uh, Joshua comes up from the angel of the Lord, the army, and he asks him, are you for us or against us? And he says, neither. Neither. <laughs> exactly right. That's so great. Such a great biblical example, Chris. Yeah, the, and the Lord the Lord comes between these two armies. Yeah. One is his people, but they don't honor him. Yeah. You yeah. for us or against us? Ne- no. <laughs> <laughs> so good yeah. so good yeah i i mean when um when jerusalem is swallowed up and the temple is destroyed and men women and children are slaughtered jesus himself says that that is god doing that through the romans so you can't you can't have this idea of like oh no that's that's immoral because God has done that himself. Now, it may be immoral to do that in opposition to God, <laughs> clearly, just as it is immoral to, to oppose him whatsoever. 
But but that's a separate conversation from what is inherently right and inherently wrong. The Christian ethic is lined up purely with God, and insofar as it derivates from God's ethic, it's a satanic ethic. And insofar as it's a squeamishness, it's a satanic squeamishness. It's a satanic weakness. It's a weakness of the flesh within us. Um, it is it is a challenge because I know I've been born and raised in this squeamish, effeminate culture, and that you know is ready to like grasp its pearls at God. Well, and 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 at His justice and at His violence. Meanwhile, allowing all kinds of abhorrent things to exist and go on without clutching a single pearl. Um, but you know, it, at the end of the world, so Revelation is another great book to read for this. Especially, I think it's around chapter sixteen through eighteen. Forgive me if I'm off. I'm just shooting from the hip here. But um, Christ, when he returns, returns on a war horse and rides through the earth with the blood of his enemies going up to the bridle of his horse. How many uh, How many Assyrians was it that Christ showed up and slaughtered? Remember that? Or was it the Assyrians or was it the... Remember that army? He shows up, the angel, 180,000. Yeah, whoever it was. 180,000, he comes up and slaughters. I mean, that, talk about a Braveheart movie. That's Jesus. That's that's your Lord and Savior with a sword executing enemies. Like if you're not down with that, then and and I and I have to confess that I'm not wholly down with that, but that part of me that is not wholly down with that is sinful and doesn't understand Christ and doesn't understand God. So in Revelation, when the saints see wicked people driven from the earth by Christ. Their response is rejoicing because while we pray for our enemies, we recognize that they are our enemies. And if they will not convert, they will be driven out by Christ to the applause of saints and angels, to the great joy and rejoicing of saints and angels. All right. So uh, maybe that's enough on that soapbox. Well, yeah, but the other thing is they don't. I, I see a lot of people, they don't read all of Revelation, and they forget the people. It says every nation, tongue, and tribe is in heaven. And they forget the only way some people can get to heaven is if they die as kids or babies. Because you look at how parents merci- massacre their kids, you know. You look at the Aztecs, the Mayas, the Incas. God... Those are God's children, and they sacrificed them. Yeah. And they deserve to be in heaven. They didn't do anything. They were just born. Yeah. They were God's creation, and they, so. So, yeah, especially today on Columbus Day, not uh, Indigenous Peoples Day. Yeah. Um, Whatever whatever on earth that means. I mean, whatever on earth that means. No clue, like most of that. Yeah. whole philosophy but uh right god uses judgment god uses nations to judge nations even nations to judge his own nation and when his own people act no different than the pagans god says oh you want to be a pagan i'll treat you like a pagan and the pagans come in and trample his his people in the old testament so when we see nations getting destroyed by nations we shouldn't oh jesus what are you doing running my kingdom dummy <laughs> right I'm, I'm running things just fine and my judgment has been made, and this this people group for their relative atrocities to this other people group has been weighed and found wanting, and they're going to be destroyed. It's frequently the case that the nation he uses to destroy a wicked nation 
kind of my Christopher Columbus reference. Um, frequently, the pattern is in due time, that nation itself becomes so wicked that it has to be punished. And so the cycle goes. So the cycle goes. Yeah. That's history. It's not devoid of Christ. It's absolutely recognizing that this is what Christ does. And we Christians are foolish if we think that this has nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with Christology, nothing to do with uh, light and darkness and truth and error. And um, like, likewise, fully being willing as Christians to understand the kingdom of Christ and to understand that sometimes that fight is profoundly physical. And sometimes that requires Christians to take up arms. True. Other other times and other eras would think we're insane for thinking otherwise. When the when Islam is coming in and ransacking and raping and pillaging and everything else, if we had our current two kingdoms doctrine in place, we would be told that the proper thing to do <laughs> is to let them in. Christianity is pacifism. Let them in. Let them rape and pillage. Oh, we have to suffer for the gospel. We're not engaged in in power or the right-hand kingdom. I, for the life of me, this makes zero sense outside of the decadent West. I'm probably preaching to the choir here. But uh, if you don't think that the Crusaders were right, as I was indoctrinated to think that they were wrong, and this was some shameful uh, part of our Christian history, I was fully indoctrinated by that, and the church too, apologizing all the time for this and saying how wrong it is. Um, you, you could read any number of books, but go read uh, The Sword and Scimitar, um, by a guy whose last name is Ibrahim. I don't think any relation, uh, but it'll it'll utterly change your mind because you'll recognize that these people are empowered. This religion is empowered by the demons. And if you don't oppose force with force, you're demon food and your loved ones are demon poop. So if that's what you're faced with, you had better man up. And I, and you know, if we're, if the church isn't robust enough to, to make those statements in the West, then we deserve what we do. So pacifism and Christianity are basically oil and water. There's a kind of personal pacifism, like if somebody insults you, strikes you on the cheek, you can turn the other. Indeed, you should. Someone wants to steal your cloak personally and let them have your other too. There's a kind of pacifism. Um, that's very limited in scope, very personal and individual in scope. But when it comes to operating together as a people and operating together as a kingdom and recognizing this, yes, we're in, we are in the kingdom of Christ, which is not of this world. Nonetheless, he has us planted in kingdoms that are beholden to him. Thus, we are loyal to him in those kingdoms. We demand that our rulers rule as he would have them rule. And we're not afraid to use force even as he uses force. So some things to consider, and maybe enough things um, that you know you can uh, you can bring me up on charges if you like. I'll, I'll enjoy that thoroughly. So otherwise, uh, uh, contemplate it because I I would I would venture to say even if I'm wrong here or there, it's a, it's a good dose of sanity relative to where we've been for the past um, seventy five years or so. All right. Any, any other? Uh, I don't want to cut it short. Anything else? Just one yes, other sir. thing about the church itself. Um, did you say one time that the church, that the Lutheran church got rid of the Psalms from our own um, service book or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Ab like that because it was so... I think, I think the Lutheran service book, the LSB that we have in there is... Um, is the is probably the best hymnal that's still sure. in print and yeah. widely in use. Uh, so I don't mean to demean it, sure. but the 
all of the, what I've been talking about in the softness is quite evident in there. Um, what hymns are left out and what hymns were put in. Uh, and then, so, I mean, I, I just can hardly even believe that it's, it's really just inexcusable. I, I, I'd like to be polite. I'd like to explain everything in the kindest way. I think this is the kindest way. It's cowardly. They left out uh, the, impre- the imprecatory psalms. They left out the psalms about, uh, you know, and, and again, we are, um, because because Americans can't stomach a line penned by the Holy Spirit about dashing infants' heads against the rocks. Well, we've taken that out, and so now that's unthinkable. And now when someone says, well, not only is it thinkable, but God himself commanded it, and the Holy Spirit penned it in the Psalms for his people to sing in all times and places, all we can do is clutch our pearls and remove it, pretend that it doesn't exist. I, I, don't, I can't think of a greater indictment. I, am I out of line here? <laughs> I don't know. I get wound up because it's like literally like, okay, well, we can't tear it out of the Bible. But when it comes to constructing our, our psalmody, we can tear it out and act like it, there wasn't enough uh, enough space while we have like what kind of hymns, earth and all stars, something about loud wording planets, a bunch of feminized love songs yeah, to Jesus. You know, in the Episcopal Church, that's why you see some Episcopal Church still using the 1929 prayer book. And all the others got all the other editions, but you were finding some that never went to it. They yeah. still do the 29. Yeah, yeah. And, and our TLH is probably stronger. Our old red hymnal is probably stronger just on how widely it's in print or how widely it's in use. It's probably a stronger hymnal overall. Yeah, so these are the these are the problems we're up against. These are real errors of our time. These are the real heresies of our time, and it's why you know, undoubtedly, you know, making some people sweat or will make some people sweat when they listen to the recording of this. But you know, if we're gonna if we're not gonna do civil war LARPing about justification, and we're actually gonna get out and confront the heresies and the false teachings and the thing and our blind spots, then this is kind of what it looks like. <laughs> And if I'm not if I'm not pointing that out, we're not talking about this, and I feel like I'm doing you a disservice. And the Lord's going to say, "Hey, did you preach the whole council? No, no, Lord, just the parts that are comfortable." <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. One other question about, about the sword in in Matthew twenty six fifty two, Jesus mm-hmm. tells it's Peter. Yeah, I don't yeah. It's, it doesn't say it's Peter here, but you know, put back your sword because uh, well, we'll take the sword will perish by the sword. Mm-hmm. How does that fit? Yeah, it's it's part and parcel of the left-hand kingdom reality. So the um, the confessions, actually, the Lutheran confessions, I learned this because I had to, I tell you what, it's like I start feeling like the, a conspiracy theorist. It's like, it's like, Everything I've heard about the two kingdoms, everything I've been taught about the two kingdoms, like, okay, well, where did you get that? And I go looking at the sources, and they're like vacuous at best. So I go digging to the sources myself. One of the most beautiful lines that you can find, it's, a, it's actually two lines, but you can find these two phrases in the Book of Concord, um, the power of the sword versus the power of the word or the power of the, the pen. Okay, so it's that idea. These are the two powers. The church, properly speaking, is the power of the word. That's its power. The left-hand kingdom, properly speaking, has the power of the sword. We, are, we have dual citizenship. 
So we, of course, as kingdoms of as as citizens of the kingdom of the right, which is our primary and universal citizenship, we speak the word. But we're also placed by God in left-hand kingdom nations. And we have every right and responsibility to take up the sword to fight injustice. And if we take up the sword, we should expect to be slayed by the sword. Good. Great. I'm frankly, I'd preferable to rotting in a nursing home uh, no, no, while, while uh, the, the Chinese continue to control us. <laughs> yeah. so, so in this instance, Jesus had an addition to whoever achieved the sword was mm-hmm. because he was in a right-hand kingdom situation. So Peter there in specific is trying to prevent Christ from being crucified. Sure. So I do think that there's quite a bit of apples oranges going on there. Um, we have to get really, really clear with our categories. Similarly, um, Jesus before Peter will say, if my kingdom, you know, this, are you a king? You say that I am a king. Right? Um, and Jesus goes on to say, you know, look, if my kingdom was of this world, then I'd have tons of followers here fighting. So what he's saying there is he's not abdicating the left, though. He's not saying, look, I have only one kingdom and it's the right and it's the kingdom of the cross and the kingdom of passivity. That's not what he's saying. But he is spelling out the nature of the right-hand kingdom and the nature of our citizenship. There is the power of the word. Um, elsewhere, you have you have um, uh, in Jesus, but more explicitly, I think, in the apostles, statements regarding like the left-hand kingdom in jesus one that's frequently brought up is when his uh, disciples say well i can't remember the details like we have a sword or we have two swords or whatever it is and he goes yeah that's enough i mean but he doesn't say how dare you leave that behind our kingdom is not of you know there's a recognition that fighting to keep him from the cross not acceptable if there's a pure martyrdom that you get subjected to for the sake of being you don't have to take up your AR and fight off that martyrdom. But if you're looking at your, your God-given uh, vocation within a certain nation state and you have opportunity to defend your neighbor against demon-possessed, uh, wicked idolaters, you had better. You had better. Um, and this, this gets to the vocation of father gets to the vocation of citizen. Um, but as a, as a father of a household, um, you are also a peer of other fathers of other households. And if those households are in need of help, I mean, this is the fabric of society. We have to reinvent society because we haven't had a society for so long in this country. We have to reinvent it. But this is, um, and, and a lot of, a lot of this, you know, I don't really care what your policy is on immigration, but what's happening in Europe and what's happening here is not immigration. It's invasion. And it's invasion uh, explicitly so. Take a look at the folks coming over. It's not poor families who are looking for a fresh start, by and large. It is, by and large, fighting age males who are coming over. That's, That's an invasion. Okay, now before we had mass invasion mislabeled as everything in our age is, as immigration, with violins playing in the background to drum up our sympathies, okay, we actually had a cohesive society. And we had an understanding between people groups that I have your back and you have mine. And that's down to you're out of bread, have a loaf from my table. Or um, you, there are wicked 
Right. Sorry about that. Or there are wicked people uh, attacking you. I'm going to defend you because you're my brother. You're my countryman. This is just this is just how the world understands itself. And we're so freakish in the West. We have to like reinvent this. We have to reinvent this idea of brotherhood, of kinship, of uh, of nationhood, and of being one fabric. And again, this has all been this is because we have been invaded, and the division is all entirely synthetic, and it's for a purpose. We are all so isolated and fragmented as to not be dangerous, as to not be a threat. And as long as you give us enough beer and circus, I mean, iPhones and NFL the elite can do whatever they want to do and they can govern however they, and they can have a white collar slave class and they can do, and the rich will keep getting richer and the poor will keep getting poorer and it'll um, continue to go exactly the way it's going. So, you know, again, I, I think they're just to tie it in. It was, we have to start seeing these things outside of the political paradigm that bl- tends to blind, like, Oh, are you right or left? Are you Democrat or Republican? Um, and start seeing it more like, are you of the kingdom of Christ? Are you of these things that are naturally written into humanity for all times and all places? Are you, are you understanding the nature of humanity, not as fraction individuals, but as a cohesive whole? If you're understanding these things, you're going to see the world in a starkly different way. And you're going to be able to cut through the clutter and the false sort of dichotomies that are put before us in the media that again only serve to fragment. The, the real division is, are you of Christ or not? Are you of the light or of the darkness? And you start seeing things through that lens, everything starts to get more clear. Maybe more uncomfortable, more clear. Okay, we've got three more minutes. Um, I don't, I don't even really want to jump back in because the next thing is difficult in a different way. And I know we kind of got a little afield here, but, but not really because the whole question is a question of justice and righteousness and our place as Christians in the world and our view toward, uh, unbelievers. We cannot, I think that this section really challenges us. We cannot see them as neutral. They are enemies of Christ and, uh, they may be lesser or greater enemies of Christ. Of course, if they are Christians in office, they're friends of Christ, and we ought to support them. By the way, in the Catechism, it teaches us explicitly when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, that we're praying for devout and faithful rulers. But do you think Luther meant like devout Muslims and faithful abortionists? I, no. Devout and faithful means Christian. We're praying for Christian rulers, and we're praying for Christian rulers who will not not be Christian in name only, but actually rule in accord with Christ and, and his word. Um, the, the large catechism and the fourth commandment um, goes wild on us, that it is our place to judge the world, just as Paul says here, and we will, in fact, to judge the world. But that judgment even begins now in this sense, that rulers who do not rule in accord with natural law are condemned by God. And to state that outright isn't some kind of political statement. It's a theological statement. So govern, governors on the, in the left-hand kingdom are expected to govern in accordance with God's natural law. And secondarily, according to Luther in the large catechism, they are to make sure that the church prospers and flourishes in safety. Those are the two criteria of godly government. 
And anything short of that, we Christians are right to critique, to rebuke, as even John the Baptist rebuked a politician and lost his head for it. Uh, that is that is part and parcel of our calling. Okay, well, that's going to be it um, next week because we've got this next section that starts at nine, and it's it's uniquely hard in a different direction. So we'll take our full energies uh, and save them up for next week. Let's let's close. Um, by the way, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, since we're going to pray it, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Where? Where should his kingdom come? Everywhere. His rule be extended everywhere. And if that were not enough, thy kingdom come, but also thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The small catechism teaches us that we are praying that he would break and hinder all the powers, all the efforts of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. So you can hardly pray. And then all of that's wrapped up with how on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is a divine monarchy. And heaven is now a place where all the wicked have been cast out. Revelation 12 is that Christ ascends into heaven, sits at the throne, all the wicked are cast out. We are praying that as it is in heaven, so it would be on earth. And part of that prayer is that it would be done among us also. That's the catechism. In other words, that the heavenly reign of Christ and the way he reigns there as monarch unopposed would come down to earth, that he would be acknowledged as monarch unopposed. Nebuchadnezzar is a prime example. Someone didn't understand that. Yeah, right. Nebuchadnezzar, is he the one Is he the one that God made to eat the grass like yeah. a cow? We could be so fortunate. Well, I don't know. If uh, some of our some of our leaders, you can't help but see the judgment of God upon them in their uh, in their delusions. All right. So pray the uh, pray the Lord's Prayer now in, in that light. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.